0: Well, a glyph is a written symbol. Because if you think about a letter, that's 26 of them for the English alphabet. What do you call a numeral? What do you call a punctuation mark? What do you call those other bits that are so integral to our writing that are not letters? So glyph is the universal uh Way of referring to all the marks that you make in language. Hello,
1: and welcome to Ears Wide Open a podcast. That is a project of the Open Book at Two Hundred One Ponsonby Road, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop. Today we have with us Yawen Ho. Yawen is a writer, a research assistant at Waitiata Press and a maker of zines. Welcome, Yawin. Yeah,
0: Thank you. It's
1: such a pleasure to have you here. It's
0: lovely to be here.
1: And you are going to do an amazing event, which will have passed by the time people read this, but uh, sorry, listen to this, uh, um, which is going to involve reading and printmaking and other activities at the bookshop this Sunday, which is going to be great. So to launch off this podcast, would you like to read us some of
0: your work? Sure. Um...
1: Oh, were well, we're going to look for it for you. Oh, you know it I know it Okay, great yes. So she's not going to read it She's going to declaim it <laughs>
0: <laughs> hmm. To ascend to the subject of desire One has placed out of reach Plant an acorn under each foot And weigh terji ji tao A hyperbole of a peachy keen Squeaky ke ing hong ye lu 不协调的色快风在意, chia seeds clog the sink. Chia seeds clog the sink, but the old milk lets itself out anyway. It is quiet. My onesie and I return to the business of writing. ting yu shui A cat. A cat opens up a cloud and a bird falls out. A nephrologist puts it back into the sky and it rains. This afternoon, I would like to read the essay on the virtues of not understanding. I aspire to virtue-multuous falls from grace, from the great heights of oaks.
1: It's amazing. Cheers, yeah. <laughs> So talk to me about that poem. It's a little bit in English, and it's a little bit
0: in Guoyu, Yes, a little bit is in Guoyu, or um, also known as Mandarin. I had a very sort of groundbreaking moment in 2013 when my publisher, uh, Susan Schultz, directed me to the work of a poet, Jonathan Stalling, And he writes what he calls... Sinophonic poems in which he takes English sounds and he seamlessly blends them or integrates them with Mandarin sounds and asks very provocative questions about what language actually means. So from that point onwards, I've always thought about how to treat both of my languages with the same weight in my work.
1: Yes. And does that poem feel like a success in that to you?
0: I think it does, because while I have started appending them with translated footnotes, often quite creatively translated footnotes, I never feel I have to Uh, subtitle or dub myself or impose translation I feel like this manner of writing allows those phrases and those lines of Mandarin to just exist I don't have to explain myself and those gaps of understanding for people who don't have Mandarin you could start thinking of them as spaces for learning or that you don't even realise that you've stopped understanding and that you're not hearing English until much later. Yes.
1: And it's a different experience to hear you speak them than to read them. And I, I have a very passing relationship with Mandarin, having lived in China for a little while, but being very bad at languages and particularly <laughs> very bad at tone, um, so that I can understand that you are speaking Chinese and mm. hear it as words rather than mm. just as you know, gabble but mostly I don't know what you're saying and I Mm. certainly can't read any of it. Mm. But it feels very attractive to me to look at something that is in English and in Chinese as Mm. well. And then to hear you speak it feels very I think poetic is the right word, right? When Mm. you move from the English which hits me with that semantic force Mm. to the Chinese which hits me with merely a kind of melodic sense and a few very poorly grasped meanings mm. that feels like quite an intense poetic experience to me
0: it's a very different language when it is spoken compared to when it is written i certainly feel with these uh hybrid works it's a lot less scary for people when it is heard and when i am reading because the human voice is there. You have the immediate warmth of the person, and you know that the reading will pass. It's a temporal experience. But when it is written down on paper, and you see these glyphs, Mandarin is not an alphabetic writing system. So you're confronted. Uh, you know, like even if you are reading French, say. Even though you don't have French because they still use the Latin alphabet, there's a degree of familiarity that is completely lacking when you switch over to Mandarin.
1: And it has that incredible, to go to, you know, uh, Said's concept of Orientalism. It Uh, has that intense moment of like, (laughs) oh, that's so foreign
0: yeah. and you know
1: and the desire to kind of co-opt it as yeah. picturesque or as yeah. poetic in the written form I mean
0: that's kind of what Ezra Pound did and there's a lot of work unpacking what that means for a white man of power to be using and a bit of
1: a bastard as well by all
0: accounts <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> that's a, whole other podcast that's a whole other podcast where other we just podcast. abuse
1: Ezra Pound but yes carry on
0: you know, um, when I was starting to ask questions about what it means to bring both of my languages into the same space, you know, I looked at what Ezra Pound was doing. I read some of the theoretical thinking and work around that. And, and, and I realized, oh, we're, we're, we're on very different wavelengths of thinking.
1: Here. And for <laughs> listeners who are not familiar with Pound's voyages into Orientalism. What? Just give us a quick summary.
0: Well, he certainly approaches the writing system from a very pictographic point of view, which I really object to, because the writing system, there are six categories of glyph making, and the smallest of them is pictographic.
1: And what's a glyph?
0: Well, a glyph is a written symbol. Because if you think about a letter, that's 26 of them for the English alphabet. What do you call a numeral? What do you call a punctuation mark? What do you call those other bits that are so integral to our writing that are not letters? So glyph is the universal uh, way of referring to all the marks that you make in language. So there are many other ways of um, creating a glyph in Mandarin that's not pictographic. You know, many of them also carry information about how they sound. Many of them carry meaning in other ways. And he had such a strong focus on pictographs in a way that really alienates you.
1: And was he writing so I'm having vague memories of translations or what What was he actually doing? You obviously know this material much better than I do.
0: I don't know it terribly well um, because I lost interest fairly quickly.
1: <laughs> I'm giving the thumbs up. Awesome. This is how we should treat.
0: Um, I read enough to um, to accept that, oh, I'm not interested in this pursuit and I can stop now.
1: Great, great. Mm. Okay, well, look, I was going to ask you as well about your origin story as a poet. So, <laughs> tell me about when you started to think of yourself as a Yawen Ho poet. I don't think I. You're not there yet. I just didn't think say, I set about? out
0: to be a poet, because I went to art school, and so, so that was your first mistake. No, I I stand by going to art school. I I'm married to okay. someone who went to art school. Oh, that's great. It's set me up well, it's taught me very valuable lessons I didn't expect to learn, and you only realise how valuable those things are until much later, I think. I arrived at poetry quite accidentally. Of course, first, I must acknowledge that between the ages of 8 and 12, I was writing poetry in Mandarin, and I was getting published. But... My English language practice didn't happen until I was at university again.
1: Um, So we're just going to have to go back to this child prodigy moment you were having and just talk (laughs) us through that a little bit.
0: Well, I have to acknowledge my mother in insisting if I couldn't practice self-discipline in the learning and practice of my native language, then she was going to impose some discipline and send me to language school. So that happened from my the ages of 8 all the way up to the first year of university. And
1: this was you were living in New Zealand. Yep. With your Taiwanese family yep. and she was saying
0: every Saturday you yes. have language school. Yeah. That is how I am able to read, write, speak Mandarin. And it seemed you take it for granted at the time. But in hindsight, I realize she'd actually chosen a very radical teacher for us because she taught writing. She taught creative writing rather than just language learning. So we weren't just rote learning words and phrases. We were learning how to compose a sentence, how to write an essay, how to appreciate a piece of literature. And for an eight-year-old, You don't realise how rare that is to have a teacher that visionary.
1: And what a gift to be able to accept that as a natural course of things. Yeah,
0: it was just um, the thing that you did every Saturday and you complained about to all your friends. She had, our Lee, our language teacher, had strong connections to publishers because she worked at one. Um, They would publish anthologies of children's poetry. So as a part of our exercise to learn Mandarin, she would give us, write in this form, write this poem, and she would send it back, and they were being published in Taiwan. So,
1: And why did you stop doing that?
0: Because I was at university, and I was about to pursue another relationship with language, And at that time, you were old enough to exercise your own self-discipline and the upkeep of your languages.
1: Hmm. And so then tell us about um, your relationship with English language poetry.
0: Well, I came to it through art school. And what I love about art school is that it teaches you to always be questioning things, to be critical about things, And it fostered a really interesting relationship between visual images and text because you not only thought about the semantic meaning of the text, but you thought about all the material dimensions of your text. So at art school, when you're about to include a piece of writing with your work, you thought about the paper that it was on. You thought about the typeface that you're using, you even thought about the micro-typographic details. You know, how large is my point size? How wide is my spacing? How, How are my margins? You thought about all of those things. And that meant I was already predisposed to a certain kind of poetry. You know, in the Elam Fine Arts Library, you find collections of concrete poetry of language poets and that was just so natural to me to get into this kind of very self-reflexive poetry
1: yeah I think we've we've started on the journey but when do we get to the moment where you said to yourself oh look at this turns out I'm a poet who knew
0: when other people started calling me one
1: (laughs) (laughs) and how did that feel weird and how does it feel now? Still weird. Why is that? What, what, what's your natural home? What do you feel comfortable being called?
0: I guess I have so many homes. I am not particularly... When I want to actualize an idea, I don't prescribe in which medium that idea must materialise in. It just there there are words that's available to me there are images that's available to me there is spoken word that is also available to me and so it feels weird to have to have your identity tied down to a particular medium when you well, migrate a, across a, so a many facet, different mediums. A
1: facet of what you do, yeah. And so, if you are having, so I'm I'm drawing on my own experience here, but you're having the itch that tell, the brain itch that tells you there's a thing <laughs> that needs to be materialized, mm. so that you can remove the itch from your brain. <laughs> how do you know or how, what kind of sense gives you an idea of what direction to go in? If it's visual, or if it's language, or if it's something else. Mm.
0: Usually. The idea will have come from somewhere and you look at where it's come from and that will answer the question about which medium, I think. I,
1: I read your poetry and thank you for sending me some. And I thought of it as brazenly attentive to language <laughs> and to both of your languages because as we've heard already, you've got English and you've got uh, Goryu in your work. And for listeners, if you didn't quite pick up before Goryu, if I've understood Mm. correctly, is what the language most of us probably know as Mandarin or Putonghua or um, Chinese is known as in Taiwan. So that's the Taiwanese dialect or version of that language.
0: It's not a dialect. If someone were to speak Putonghua to you, you wouldn't be able to necessarily discern it from Guoyu. It's like the fact we don't call... English, you know, American English, we don't call it out as different from British right. English in the same right. way. You know, we understand there are multiple Englishes. And so with Chinese, there are multiple Chinesees. just so happens that the labels we give the different Chinesees have connotations and contexts that are rooted in the politics and the social practices of those regional pra- places.
1: Mm, yeah, and that's, that's something your writing is obviously very alert to. So uh, your essay, Dear You, which if you listeners Google Dear You and mm-hmm. Yao Ho, you will find, and is an amazing essay. It's not as long as it looks because there's lots of blank space, so don't be intimidated. Uh, which I thought was amazing, I really enjoyed reading. Uh, You quote quote Bell Hooks, who says, it's not the English language that hurts, but what the oppressors do with it, which is separating the actions from the tool, Hmm. I think there, right? And you say that English and Goryu are both languages of colonialism, And you write in that essay, I must acknowledge my languages as grenades. This I must always know so I may speak and write responsibly. And you go on to say, it is okay to choose the languages you live in, mindful of the conditions of this choice and ask yourself, why do you choose the way you do? And what motivates your choice? And so I was interested to ask you on this podcast, what is it to write responsibly? How do you do that? And why do you choose the way that you do?
0: Yeah, I had to give this one a lot of thought. When I started reading For Dear You, because Dear You is the outcome of a Horoeke-Lancewood reading grant, which was all about giving writers time to recharge and to read. And at that point, I was very interested in learning more about the histories of my languages, because I've come to Mandarin quite naively, and having grown up in New Zealand... You don't. Where Mandarin is obviously a community language because I am neither Pakeha nor Mori. And where does this language sit in this third space that in the early 90s was a very thin sliver of a space?
1: It's interesting. I hear Mandarin every day in my. I live in Newmarket mm. and the
0: cafe I get my coffee and yeah. You know, the first time I said, yeah.
1: it, oh, it's yes, yeah, they were like. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Ah. yeah, things have changed. You know, it's things, incredible. Things have yeah. changed a lot, but I grew up... Except
1: the 90s is a long time ago it was now. a long
0: time ago now. Um, I grew up very naive because um, Mandarin, within a New Zealand context at that time, was a real minority language. So I always thought it was this benign, powerless thing. Um, and then the more reading I did for Dear You, the more I realised... Holy shit, it's like, um, it's kind of like noticing that elderly, you know, friendly neighbor you've said hi to for the last 20 years is actually a war criminal. It's like, how do you come to terms with the fact that Taiwan has? Oh very... man, I belong to one of the great colonizers. Yeah, I, I mean, history. I mean, oh, Taiwan has like a, a very, very complicated colonial history that within New Zealand is never taught. You know, I never really
1: struggled to teach our own colonialist history. So
0: I never got the chance to understand what that meant for me and just learning more about the language policies that were brought in by the colonizing government and the incredible harm and hurt and injury it did for indigenous languages.
1: So can you just give us a very brief kind of summary of that history? For those listeners who are not familiar. So we have mainland China and we have Taiwan. And then what happens? Don't start too far back.
0: <laughs> I was like, wow. Um,
1: Let's just stick with like the 20th century, shall we?
0: Wow. But it goes, it goes even further back, though, because you had the Portuguese, you had the Dutch, and then you had the Japanese, and then you had different waves of Chinese. You had some in the Qing dynasty, and then they were ousted. And then you had the most recent fracture, obviously, is in the 1950s. But Japan's colonial rule, they enforced slowly phases, tighter and tighter control over what you could speak and what you couldn't speak until Mandarin was the official language and there was no room for indigenous languages. And that government under military rule, Taiwan was under military rule until the year of my birth in 1987. And at that point, all state officials, that was the language of the state Mandarin.
1: And what other languages had been there or were still clinging on?
0: Well, Taiwan now recognises officially 16 indigenous languages. Because prior to that, there were nine and more local iwi and tribes. And those languages just... There's so few people speaking them. Because the language policies of convergence towards Mandarin and how it's held up at this... Your, your route to power, your route to assimilation. Yeah, so and traditional languages are in a very poor state at the moment.
1: And so in that context then, to go back to the question, what is it to write responsibly in these two brutalising languages?
0: <sighs> it's one of great apology, I think. I was recently in Hong Kong earlier this year for a research trip and then I realised I couldn't speak in either of, either neither English nor Mandarin without it being a horrific act of violence towards somebody because, obviously, British colonial rule for 100 years and now what mainland China is trying to instill in Hong Kong. And And for those
1: listeners who are not clear on that, uh, Cantonese is spoken in Hong Kong much more than Mandarin, so Mandarin is the language of mainland China and Cantonese is the language of Hong Kong.
0: But then of course, I do not have any Cantonese. So I, could un- I I resorted to gesture and miming and great apology because neither of my languages were appropriate. But within New Zealand, I think there is more freedom to speak, because of course, Mandarin in New Zealand has a different position. It is still a position of minority. So
1: how does one speak in English, I guess, in New Zealand then, which is still a hegemonic language here? Yeah. Should we just all shut the fuck up?
0: I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I don't have a problem with people speaking in English. I have a problem when people say that English is the only language worth speaking in. I think... There is so much potential for holding space, for speaking in tereo and holding open that third space because I know we are bicultural in policy but we are multicultural in reality and there are so many languages present at this point. It's a very complicated thing to untangle all these histories of this language and Those baggages, you know, and you got to think about the New Zealand context. What do we, you know, who do we owe respect to and how to be respectful of those other languages and not to turn it into a destructive competition for hierarchy. You know, how do we recognise that everybody's language deserves equal respect?
1: And how comfortable do you feel that you are achieving that in your own practice? How responsible are you if you have to give yourself a mark, a
0: grade? Well, I'm in a couple of months when I get back from another trip, I'm committing to learning Cantonese from some, you know, fourth, fifth generation early Chinese settlers.
1: Because mm. there are people mostly of Cantonese origins yes. who have very deep backgrounds in New Zealand. Absolutely,
0: because we've had Chinese people in New Zealand since 1840 and that history needs to be acknowledged and it's a very different kind of history from this new wave of immigrants since the 80s. And so I'm committing to learning Cantonese from a member of that older community
1: so to go back then to the poet jonathan stalling who you've Mm. already mentioned and you say in your essay he bids us to remember that every line's assumed intelligibility as english comes as the result of the reader's cultural imposition upon the sounds and that profound meanings exist elsewhere in another language that that speaks with the same voice And I thought that was a really interesting quote. And one of those quotes that you kind of, you look at and you're like, I feel like I know what that means. And yet I also, I do not quite know (laughs) what that means. But that's okay, because if you wish to venture into, you know, critical discourse, you find that a lot, or at least I do. But it strikes me that you could think about your practice as an ongoing attempt to showcase all language gestures as translation. And this is obviously my take on what you're doing or one of the things that you're doing but the way that words convert or distort or change uh, or misrepresent thought emotion and if we can say reality with you know scare quotes around it into another medium is that an idea that interests you and also what do you see as the primary work of your poetry what is it
0: attempting to do gosh there's a lot to unpack in that question Maybe I'll start first with uh, translation. So I was pursuing a master's in literary translation.
1: But it was running faster than you were.
0: But it was running faster than I
1: was. (laughs) So the pursuit was hopeless. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I learned a lot in reading translation theory. Mm. Um, It's amazing, right? It's
1: such an interesting area.
0: Absolutely, because I think... It's right up my alley in the sense it foregrounds all the metadata and all those mm. things you take for granted, all the loadedness and the assumptions that you bring to a language. Translation forces you to confront those and to grapple with how you're going to reconcile non equivalence
1: and you're strangely disassociated suddenly from the language you inhabit comfortably normally, right? Absolutely. And you look at it and you go, what even,
0: what is this? Yeah, and then you start to realise the incredible diversity that is language. And, you know, I mean, just think about grammar. Uh, like, how many different kinds of grammar exist? And you suddenly go, oh, yeah. And then the
1: contingency, you know, what... I, there's another point I don't think I've quoted it here, but about languages, it's not so much what you can say in a language, but what you can easily say. Absolutely. Which you will, listeners, have already listened to Michaela talking about uh, type cases. Mm. So, in a different type case, you can you can reach things more easily, yes. and more naturally set for one yes. language, yes. and then a language's grammar yes. or set of thoughts gives yes. you one set of meanings
0: more naturally mm. than another might.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: I mean, speaking of type cases, we saw some amazing examples. So my colleagues, uh, Dr. Duncan Campbell, Dr. Sydney Shep and I traveled to Taiwan and Hong Kong to visit master letterpress printers because we at Waitiata Press were custodians of uh, New Zealand's only body of Chinese letterpress type. These are full form traditional script characters. And we are grappling with how to organize them. So we saw these. Just
1: throw them in a heap in the corner. It'll be fine.
0: Oh gosh! But when you're talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of glyphs and sorts, how do you grapple with what is easy to say when ease is completely not a part of the of the of, of what you're trying to do? Like. In entering this project, you already know that it's not going to be easy. So,
1: and is there a pre-established answer to this? Right? I mean, this is what you went to Taiwan yes. to find out. Like, um, yes. we have this, we have this trouble, but we feel you have probably already solved it. How did you solve <laughs> it?
0: They have different traditions, you know, similar to the development of the case for English language. There's the California, but there's also the holy case for New Zealand. And depending on what dialect and, you know, regional habits, there are different designs of case. So comparatively, there are also different lays of case and different methods of organisation, depending on how you're using that language. Mm. And to a quite granular level, almost, because, you know, we met, we went and saw this museum that used to be a sugar corporation, a state-owned enterprise. And they have a very idiosyncratic lay of case that allows them to talk about this business of producing sugar.
1: Right, the sweet case.
0: Yeah. They're, they're foregrounding certain words that you wouldn't see if you were walking into a print shop that did calendars, say. right. But they talked a lot. Um, they asked us to guess the most frequently used character. We all guessed it was going to be the word sugar, tang, but it wasn't. It was the phrase Zhonghua uh, Mingguo, the Republic of China, the uh, longer formal name for Taiwan, because as a state-owned enterprise, they were engaged in this nation sugar, identity sugar making. Sugar yeah, propaganda. Yeah. So it was really fascinating. Wow, to, that is so interesting, um, isn't
1: it? And the engagement of, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about the engagement of sort of state and ideology and propaganda and all of those things in in China and and China's offshoots. But let us not go into that. Let us go back to the question of what is your poetry trying to do?
0: I don't know. What what would you do? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I have a particularly sharpened focus or intent I think I just want to ask quite provocative questions about what it means to use language what it does it mean to use more than one language in a place like New Zealand and for to sort of surface some of those big things and to just get people to question if not value those assumptions that they make about language.
1: And why poetry?
0: I never set out to be a poet. No, just, we've covered that.
1: help us, it just came to me.
0: I think poetry is the one form of writing where you don't necessarily have to make sense, where you can ask very big questions and you're not forced to answer them. And I enjoy that freedom.
1: Yeah, so do I. I agree with that. (laughs) I definitely agree with that. Uh, So oral fold. So I was so interested in this. There's a rhyme that goes, uh, it starts out, Miss Lucy had a steamboat. Do you know this rhyme? Mm -hmm. The steamboat had a bell. Miss Lucy went to heaven. The steamboat went to hello operator. Please get me number nine. And it goes on. And it uses that technique of one word turning into another Mm -hmm. as you're speaking it. Yeah. And I have always just loved that rhyme mm-hmm. um that folk song whatever the right word mm-hmm. for it is mm-hmm. and that technique uh you refer to as an oral fold of one word turning into another and mm. we heard it in the poem that you read mm. at the beginning right where english words were folding into chinese words and yeah. you were speaking them and you could hear both of them mm. um there so, and you use this in a poem you sent me, which is called Hyperventilating on the Threshold of It. Yes. And you run it through all of the lines. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about this and about what the satisfaction in this effect is for you, what you enjoy about it.
0: Well, I enjoy turning those works into almost small pranks. I love the way the word pivots at the end of the syllable, and sometimes they sort of sneak past you and you don't detect them or you don't realise you're somewhere else now. And because we always think language is a stable thing, this meaningful thing, when it really isn't. Everything is being negotiated all the time. You could be surprised and turned upside down at any point and the oral folds are about that element of surprise, of you know, whipping out the rug from underneath you and making you realise the instability of language.
1: And there must be a kind of joy of the craft in it as well. Yes. In the pleasure of finding what you can make.
0: For absolutely, it absolutely. Going, oh, The dictionary doesn't serve me in trying to find a word that begins with this sound and then your search through your vocabulary is suddenly recalibrated when you're listening for that syllable and you get very unexpected results because the English language pronunciation is all over the place. Right. You can
1: bend it a little. You could, right? yeah, you could
0: definitely yeah, bend it a flex-y. little. It is, it is.
1: Yeah. And yeah. it has, it felt slightly sort of almost acrostic to me. You know, anything where you've kind of set yourself, you set out to write something and you've set some kind of limits on what you can do. Mm. You know, you've given yourself a form or a pattern to press against. Yeah. interesting because it puts you in places you wouldn't have otherwise gone.
0: Absolutely. I also enjoy it as a place, as a position of resistance. And the thing I am resisting is aboutness. Because when you are writing, the question you frequently get asked is what is this piece of work about? And when you're trying to talk about big things like the state of language, then aboutness is a very reductive question to ask it. So having this. I just procedural... always want to share, Just read the poem! Yeah, just read Read the poem.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the bloody poem. Yeah. If I w- don't like poems, not my problem.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, so so having a procedure means you could talk about so many things without yeah. having to answer that question of aboutness.
1: Yeah. So it's a it's a way of escaping. Yeah, resisting
0: it. that question, oh, going, Don't ask me that question. Yeah. 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 It's not awesome. a useful question to ask. Not of this kind of work anyway. No,
1: no. And and so then A final question for you. So Mm. you're a passionate printer, Mm. letterpress printer. Talk to me about what that means to you and how it interacts with your writing.
0: Well, for me, both letterpress printmaking and writing are exercises in thoughtfulness. Mm. And within letterpress, you are considering all those factors that make a piece of writing the piece of writing that it is. You're thinking about the body language of that piece of writing because one typeface will impart a different tone, a different voice to the same text than another piece. You know, we talked about Comic Sans, right? Setting your thesis in Comic Sans as a statement and what kind of statement is that? So letterpress invites you to think about those choices and be very aware of the context in which you are creating and producing that text. And also because of the huge investment of time and labour. I mean, literally labour because cases are heavy. 15 kilograms, easy. The long hours of standing and operating a press, that's... Literally labour. All of these things asks the question, well, what is valuable to say? What's worth the effort? Yes, and I think those are very worthy questions. And is my poetry strong enough to be printed in this way? Do I feel like what is it? contributing to in the world that requires it to be lovingly handset to have inks applied to it to be printed on good paper to have that bound beautifully what does that how do I write worthy of that so yeah letterpress asks me good questions that I'm invested in answering
1: thank you that's amazing this has been really fantastic conversation thank you so much cool. um this has been ears wide open recorded at the open book at 201 ponsonby road the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop if you are in auckland come and visit us and buy a book try the free coffee sit in the garden outside if it's warm enough chat to the charming staff uh browse around and look at the photographs that we've got up at the moment and if you're not in Auckland if you look on our website you can find my book bag which will have books regularly sent to you beautifully wrapped and with a wax seal applied lovingly by the staff